Your most valuable resource is your people. If you're not attracting, onboarding, and retaining your top talent, you're missing out. We've got the best ways for you to do just that. Join us for this episode of The Inside BS Show. Hey now, I'm Dave Lorenzo. I'm the godfather of growth, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of The Inside BS Show. Here with me, as always, is my partner, Nikki G. Hey, Nicola, how are you? Hi, Dave. I'm doing great. How are you? I am fantastic. Thank you for asking. And with us today, we have Gina, the HR genius, Gina Nelson. Gina, welcome. Thanks for joining us today for the Inside BS Show. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Gina, let's uh, give our uh, give our audience, give the folks who are listening, the folks who are watching a little background on you first, because you're who we rely on to help us with everything related to the most important resource we have in our business, and that's our people. So tell the folks who you are and how you got into HR in the first place. Share a little bit of your background with us. Sure. I'm going to go back in time. I was 21 years old. My world had just turned upside down. I became a single mom to a wonderful two-year-old little boy. And my mindset was, it's me and him against the world. So I had been a stay-at-home mom, and I was on a tight deadline to find the job to provide for both of us. And this unwavering determination that my father always told me I had just kicked in as an adult. For two weeks, I was looking for a job. This became my full-time job, eight to five. And back then it meant circling ads in the paper, personally walking in, filling out an application, giving them your paper resume. And the routine was so demanding that at the end of that two weeks, I felt really discouraged. And as many people can probably relate, discouragement is an enemy. It drains you of your power. So on the heels of one of those evenings of looking for the job, pounding the pavement, as they say, I said, I, I can't do it. I'm done. And the next day, I, I know me and I know that I usually take about a half day to bounce back when I'm that discouraged. So I had a plan. I was going to sleep in the next day. I knew I would be resilient and I would go at it again the next. But I'm glad I did because my phone rang the next morning and woke me up out of sleep. And the woman on the other end, she was with IWS. And she said, Gina, she knew my name. She said, are you still looking for a job? And I perk up, I have to seem alive. I clear my throat like I've been awake for hours. And I say, uh, yes, yes, I'm still looking for a job. And she says, can you interview today? And so I said, I'm on my way. I get over there, I interview, I get the job. But then I, I talk to her and I say, I know this is not a place where I applied. I never came through these doors before. And she says, no, you didn't. You never applied for this job. And she said, but you called me one day and you asked, are you guys still hiring? And I said, no, we just got somebody today. And she said, the, the sound in your voice told me I needed to write your name down and your number. When, I, when she told me this, it surprised me because I'm a person who keeps composure. And that kind of unfettered reaction was not normal for me. So a little bit of serendipity played a part in getting that job. And now I'm in the role and I almost lose it within the first two weeks. I almost lost the job. So what happened is I'm, it's an accounts payable and payroll job. 
and I'm in their claim system doing a check run and I'm tabbing all over that system and I'm thinking I'm gonna work so hard, I'm, I'm just diligent and I'm gonna be dynamic. So I'm in there doing that and somehow I tabbed the wrong thing and shut down the entire claim system for days, days. Oh no. So I have IT at my desk. They're behind me and they say they're trying to reduplicate this problem and they're telling me slow down. And the next thing I know, they're in closed doors with my hiring manager, talking to them, saying, you know, trying to convince them to let me go. And she had my back. She said, I'm not ready to lose this girl. And she, it all worked out. But it helped me take a step back initially get better training, right? And slow down. But as I'm in that role, I noticed that IWS was missing something. They were roughly 120 employees. They had no HR. Everything filtered up through finance and then to the leader of that organization. And so I, I went to talk to the leader who was a beacon of kindness, the heartbeat of that organization. And I asked him if I could help build out their HR processes. I said, you know, I'd like to get more experience. I'd like to understand and HR a little bit better. And, you know, the conversation happened. Well, you know, your role is here, right? This is what you're supposed to be doing. And I said, well, my job won't suffer. I just want to learn. So he actually became an ally and put me on this path where I was getting um, additional education. He put me on the path to HR certifications and he actually embraced my vision and he started me down a journey that I just never thought was possible, giving me, given an early marriage at 18 and uh, a life without, it, it just seemed like higher education was out of reach for me. So it was really another little bit of you know help there that I got. But because that opportunity was afforded me, I got to explore my skills in building out processes. And I found out that I was really good at it. I charted the path for touching every aspect of the employment life cycle. And I put in infrastructure with that organization. And because of that infrastructure, the average employee lasted eight to 10 years at that company when by the time I left. So I, I was able to um, kind of duplicate that a little bit more through different industries when a parent company took over IWS and I, I was exposed to more industries. And then after 21 years, I left that company and I helped a Finnish company start their US operations from scratch. And I became the CEO of their American operations. Uh, and then the global HR director position as well, I was able to help them on a global scale set up operations for their company. And then a year ago, roughly a year ago, I started to build uh, my own company and I helped small to medium-sized businesses with their HR infrastructure and building out their people operations. Wow, that's a great story. That's so fantastic. All the way back, you know, going all the way to the beginning from the the way, one of the ways I got a job early on, like the first job I had outside of Marriott was I would get the Sunday New York Times and I would look through the Sunday New York Times had a separate section, an entire pullout section with like job ads. And when there was a lot of jobs, the that would be like 25, 30 pages of jobs. And you would look through and every job would have no, there was no email. Every job would have a phone number or a fax number. 
and you would fax your resume and then just call and constantly follow up. And yeah, I got I got a job the same way. Somebody called me like months later saying, hey, you sent over your your resume and we talked to you and it didn't work out then, but that person left or whatever. So from the point where you got the job all the way through to making the mistake that got you into HR to that person being kind and giving you the shot. What a great, great story. Um, so following up on that story, what do you take away from that or from your, you know, from your early career or from your life experience that kind of, that you, that you bring with you that makes you good at what you do? First, I would say just the perseverance, being persistent and keep going. Don't give up, right? But also, I learned how to be a really good leader from the leadership that was, you know, this, this great leader that was over our organization. He was the owner of that company then. And I learned so much from him. And then I had the pleasure of having great leaders that followed him. So really, just being kind to others, giving them the shot, helping them learn and grow is really what I took with me. Wow, what an incredible opportunity. Something that really stood out to me, Gina, in hearing your story was that first time that you stepped into an HR role was because you realized there was a need that the company had for that type of services. So it sounds like to me, that's just a natural talent that you had in that space. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and it, I was able to uncover that because I was given that opportunity to do that. So yes, I would I would say identifying gaps is something that comes naturally. And how would you say that's developed from that early time when you first recognized it to what you're doing now? It's built over time. So now it's identifying uh, through HR audits and things like that for companies and understanding what things are, what items and where their problem areas are. I think that that has grown over time. So you work with small to mid-sized businesses now. Tell us like what what those types of companies, like what do they generally need in terms of services where you identify that and they come to you for help? Yeah, so I always say it's never too early to start, right? Because you're building a foundation. So it's it really starts with the basic foundation of, you know, a handbook and understanding the overall expectations for the employees, building their job descriptions, their hiring process and exit process. But you know, just lightly touching some of the employment life cycle stages. But honestly, it's about taking their top concerns and understanding where to start because you don't really need to start somewhere that they're not working on, right? So if they're going to go into rapid growth mode, for instance, and they say, we're going to hire, you know, we're, we're going to, you know, we have a roadmap of hiring that's going to be extreme. I want to build and touch on their hire and attract model. I want to get into their recruiting strategy and how they're going to grow. And then I also want to build an onboarding program for that. And I want to ensure that we have a full life cycle because sometimes, you know, if, if an employee is not working out, how are they exiting them? How are they building dignity and respect into the process? So I'm, I'm really going to start on the basics of those types of things, but it depends on their top concerns. Okay, so you address the top concerns and then I'd imagine you start identifying other issues where you will recommend that you have a conversation as you're working through that process with them. Yes, correct. And 
you know, we deepen those things too, as time goes on. So, you know, initially it might be those basic things, but then you deepen them as time happens. What's the, what's the easiest thing to identify when you go into a, when you go into a new place, Gina, right? Is there like, when I go into a, when I go into a new business, there's like four or five things I look at right away that most people miss for you as an HR expert, when you go into a new business, what's the low hanging fruit? What's the easiest thing to identify? Usually it's something on the compliance side. A lot of times I'm being brought in because something's gone wrong. So identifying what is your policy for this? How are we um, trying to avoid issues like this? And then building the process that kind of helps uh, do that. And if, if you look at a, a small business, a lot of times the you know infrastructure of HR, even a basic one, will lower the amount of chaos that is often there for startups, right? That's just a thing that happens. And so, if you can at least get the basics, the the standards of how you're going to work and and what what kind of um, expectations are there for the company, then you're going to lower that chaos and you're going to lower the risks that come with startups. Yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll tell you for sure that people can deal with a lot, but they hate uncertainty. So I think HR, good HR systems and practices provide at least a framework for kind of the unspoken employment agreement between people who work in an organization and the organiza organization's leadership. So it, it does make people feel more comfortable. What do you think is the, is the biggest missed opportunity early on in, uh, in your work with companies? Like when you go in there and so you fix something that's broken, but there's, there's an immediate opportunity. Where do you see that opportunity most often in, in small to mid-sized businesses? Well, mid-sized businesses, they often operate in that delicate balance between agility of a small enterprise and the resources of a larger corporation. And as a result, they might overlook some HR opportunities that drive growth and foster innovation and increases productivity. So there's three things that I probably would really highlight as important and missed opportunities. And one is training and development. Training and development, not investing enough continuous training, it, it makes skills go obsolete, right? So it, it impacts productivity and it hurts your competitiveness. So regular training helps an employee retention and the skills enhancement. And I'll give an example. There was an IT manager that I knew who had been with a company for an extended period of time. I'm talking like 15 years. And that individual failed to keep up with the evolving IT systems and integrations and other technical components of the job. And as a result, the experience, his expertise was outdated. And despite that company retaining that person for 15 years, it, it was showing that they lacked a robust training and development plans for their staff. And it was very, um, it was a disservice to that employee. So in businesses need to prioritize keeping their employees abreast of latest industry standards, keeping their knowledge and skills up and building that into their training approach and their retention approach. And what'll happen is they'll create value for the employee they will become a great place to work and they will have highly skilled workers over time. So that's number one, training and development. Another aspect is using HR analytics. So in the age of data, HR analytics that it helps provide insights 
into employees' performance, the turnover rates, the time to fill positions, which recruiting channel is working, the cost per head, what other vital areas, right? So failing to leverage that data means an, a missed opportunity to improve as an organization. And the third thing would be compliance and regulation. So failing to stay up to date with existing laws and regulations, it really causes a financial risk to the company. Sure. So, Gina, I'm working with a lot of businesses. Sometimes what I see, and actually more than sometimes, oftentimes I run into companies that are they're either newer, they're on the smaller side, and they don't realize that they need someone who is in your role. They don't realize they have an HR problem. So you've kind of talked about some of the areas where you see you know, those initial um, missed opportunities, but how can we help some business owners out there who are hearing this where they don't even know they have a problem, but they do? I mean, you could list any of the things that were happening in 2023 that companies just weren't aware of regardless of their size. And that was, one thing was the classifications of FLSA, right? Which is Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, a lot of companies misclassify uh, their employee as an independent contractor. And that has a lot of risks. It has risks for penalties, tax implications, benefit and ERISA implications that they don't realize. And then overtime payments, that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? So that's one thing. Another thing is a new I-9 form. A lot of companies didn't realize a new I-9 form came out and that they, you had to do certain things to uh, verify a person's eligibility to work in the U.S. Uh, another act that came out in 2023 was the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act uh, and the Pump Act. Companies just don't realize that they need to have, you know, reasonable, uh, provide accommodations for those types of things and go through an interactive process for that. So those are just some things that you could list that are risks. Great examples. I see misclassification often. It's the, well, we just, we didn't understand or somebody asked us if they could be classified in an independent contractor and we went ahead and did it. You did what? <laughs> so it's not knowing that can really get you in trouble. But not, so, and, and you've highlighted that it's, you have to be aware of changes, changes in the laws, changes in regulations, what laws are you even subject to? And if that's something you're not tracking as a business owner, you ought to be speaking with someone who's in your position who can at least say, now, how are you staying on top of what the laws are right now and regulations that apply to your business? And what are you doing to make sure you're in compliance with them? Yeah, I, I had a company that um, was having their independent contractors sign employee handbooks and track their time and, oh, uh, you know, ask for time off and all of that. And I was like, do you know you're treating them like an employee? You know, that's number one of, you know, misclassification right there. I can just imagine. I can just imagine. So when when we talk about HR, we think about a lot of systems and processes. We think a lot about compliance. But since we're talking about the beginning of the employee life cycle, Gina, give us a couple of ideas for we're in a tight as we as we record this show today, we're in a really tight labor market. So give us some of the things you've seen in your in your travels throughout the world of business. Give us some of the things you've seen that are uh, that are good recruiting practices that people have put in place to attract top talent in a tight labor market. First of all, attracting is really about branding of your organization. So ensuring that 
when you know your you have your your current employees who's kind of speak for you on your behalf and and this is a day and age where everybody's putting everything out there on social media they'll put an interaction that they have with their manager right so ensuring that you know when people look up your organization they're finding good data they're finding like on glassdoor and other places that people are reporting good things about you as an organization and to do that some of the first things you can do is ensure that you have a fair compensation that you're assuming, you know, that your top talent is being poached all the time, right? And assuming that, you know, they're, they know, they're finding out what your competitors are paying and what kind of benefits they have. So if you're not fairly compensating, then you're going to lose your top talent. Um, onboarding, if you're, you know, at the end of 2022, the statistics showed that approximately 70% of employees with good onboarding experiences stayed for three years or more with the company. But on the other side of that, 33% of employees that didn't have strong onboarding experiences quit within the first six months. So really thinking about how does your company look when it comes to training, development, onboarding, and a new employee? You can't have that sink or swim mentality. You're going to get bad ratings on Glassdoor everywhere if, if you do that. Man, um, that's it, those those numbers are crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. So you can't, you know, when you're looking at your employees and in, in the onboarding, they need to know how their success will be measured, right? So you want to make sure that they're also using your onboarding strategy, you want to make sure that you're entrenching your employees into the company's ethos and that they're attaching themselves to the mission and values and that they're en fully engaged that way. Yeah, Dave and I speak about this fairly often about how can you make sure that once you retain top talent, you're able to keep them. So you attract them to the company and now what? And you, you've highlighted here, it's make sure that you, you have a great onboarding process. Um, I think that that's so interesting, that that number, that's really, really high to me. You would think that it's past the onboarding process where those numbers matter more. So I think that's a really critical piece of information you shared with us. So let's get past that stage now. Now you've onboarded them, you've incorporated them into the company. They're feeling that you're interested in them being a part of your company and being a part of your company long term. What can you do past the onboarding process? Just you know, something you can think of that is good for helping to retain that talent once you get past that point? I think the most important thing you can do is help your employees grow, right? Everyone wants opportunities to grow. And it's not always like you, you don't have to have this thought process that, okay, well, we need everyone to be a manager, right? But people like to grow and it's not the same for everyone. Some people do want to aspire to become a leader while others are happy learning new tasks and skills, right? Or cross training. So understanding your workforce and the individuals in your workforce and helping them grow in their way, it goes a long way to keeping them in place. Gina, what about this, uh, the, the return to work phenomenon? I mean, we're, we've been, so we're, we're like a year into a lot of people being back in the office. And I, I go to a lot of different offices every month and everybody's struggling with this. Some people 
have a classification of employees who never have to come in the office anymore. And usually it's the most highly compensated employees, right? And then we have other people who have to come in, say, two or three days a week. And then we have a third group of people who has to come in every day because they're the receptionists or they're, they work in the mail room or they're the people who organize everything for the events that take place in the office. They're part of the support staff. So the, what I'm hearing is that like there's three different classifications now of workers related to this return to office phenomenon. The most highly compensated people, they don't have to come in at all. And then there's the tier below them. They have to come in like three days a week. And then there's the final tier for the people who do the most in, in terms of physical work who got to show up every day. And business leaders are coming to me and they're saying, I would love to have everybody in the office every day, just like it was before COVID, but I'll lose my top talent if I tell them they got to come into the office. What do I do? So I don't know that you have the answer to this, but I sure as heck know that treating people differently is a recipe, it's always been a recipe for disaster regardless. So what are you seeing related to return to office? Is anybody doing it right? Give us something we can work off of. I think most companies are recognizing that they need to allow for flexibility, right? And they're introducing what they're calling a hybrid model for uh, a blend of working from home and working from the office. And for positions that they can do that in all, whether whether it's the re receptionist or it's the, you know, depending on if they have in-office visitors and things like that, I think that they're trying to equally disperse some kind of hybrid model. And when for the positions that have to be there, I think that in their communication, they're very clear about that when they're hiring. Or, you know, in the, the case of COVID, of course, some of that sort of got filtered out and, and that communication kind of fell by the wayside. But um, I think that, the, that they're getting it right a little bit more in the sense that they understand that they want a hybrid model. They want, they need to be clear about the communication, who gets to work, what positions are okay to work from home and which are not. And that's kind of redefined on their job descriptions and such. Um, but they're also being clear about communication channels and integrating people. So when it comes to ensuring that um, they're, they're keeping people connected, they're producing tools like Slack, email, Zoom, you know, other appropriate tools, and they're telling the workforce which ones are they going to communicate more important company updates by, and then they're transparent with their communications and consistent, setting clear expectations and clearly defining any performance metrics, communicating what's expected both in the workplace and at home. I think they're doing the communication piece a little bit better in that sense. Um, they're also trying to prepare, you know, whether I think a lot of people are over the COVID response, you know, with the government and how they're handling this, but it's important for, for a business leader to decide how their organization is going to respond to COVID policy. You know, what, what are they going to do? Are they requiring people to test anymore to come into the office? But I think that the hybrid policy has actually given some flexibility when somebody has mild symptoms they're not coming in and spreading it and they're continuing to work instead of you know taking pto for that sick time so the hybrid model has given that opportunity and ability um, and then when it comes to being inclusive and collaborating and pulling people together 
in a hybrid environment that whether the employee refer you know prefers to be remote or in office there's challenges to being remote and sometimes you in a sense lose your employee by not not they don't leave the company but they leave your view you don't know where they are or what they're doing and so and sometimes they're isolated they don't feel good about that right so ensuring that you're providing the right mental health resources, flexibility, well-being initiatives, and your strong onboarding, mentorship programs, team events, social events, all of those things kind of play a part in pulling the voice from those employees that are kind of getting lost in that hybrid shuffle. Yeah, I think, I think you make a lot of sense there. I've seen people I, I've seen it. I've seen it go both ways. Here's what my prediction is, and I'm curious as to. I'd like your thoughts, and I'd like Nicola's thoughts on this. So my prediction is, when unemployment increases, I think people are going to be more rigid on their return to work demands. And like you said, I I encourage my clients to when they have an open position rewrite the job description and decide whether it's an in the office position or a work from home or a hybrid position and be clear with the expectations up front that this is 99.9% .9 of the time an in the office position or this is a 75% of the time in the office position with Friday's work from home. Set the expectations up front. But what I see on the horizon is those people who are uncomfortable with this as the unemployment rate goes up and they start to uh, implement reduction in forces, when they bring people back, they're gonna only bring people back for in the office positions. And if there's two or three hybrid positions or work from home positions out there, they'll make adjustments on a case by case basis, depending on who the talent is. I'm curious as to what both of you have seen and what your opinion is on that. Sure, I'm happy to jump in. I, I, I agree with you, Dave. Um, I remember when this first happened and you know, I was involved in working through um, the hiring process for certain positions and I remember the demands. It was, if you weren't providing an offer for someone to work from home where the employees had that leverage, they were going somewhere else to do it. And they, they would even often come to you and say, are you gonna make this person, will you make my position remote because I have an offer on the table to do so. So they would use it even to increase the offer with the, the company that they're interviewing with. So I do think that that table will shift when the unemployment rate shifts and that you will see that now on the other side of the table with the employer saying, now we want more of you back. And we're going to make that part of our you know, presentation to the, the potential employees who are interviewing for this position. You have to be in the office more. So I definitely think that dynamic will shift. I'm interested in your perspective on it, Gina. Yeah, I kind of agree with both of you. And the sense, though, is what are your competitors doing? I think that that will play a part in it. So if your competitors are letting having the hybrid environment still and you're not, you might be losing out on some top talent there. Uh, when I was at Gallup, I, I started at Gallup in 2003. And Gallup had a model where we always had, in every city where we had an office, we always had really ornate, expensive office space but we always had a, a smaller footprint than we needed. And the reason for that was because the business development function was all that was in that office, along with a really fancy large boardroom and usually a seminar type room. But there'd be five or six offices, and that was like a hoteling program before there was hoteling. And the reason for that was 
all the consulting talent, the PhD level folks, they lived all over the world. And we could bring any, ta any piece of uh, the puzzle we needed, any person we needed for an engagement, regardless of where they were located all over the world, we could assign them to our engagement. They would work on the engagement remotely and they would fly in for presentations, fly in for uh, sales meetings, fly in for executive briefings, but we didn't have really anyone in the office except one day a week when if you lived in a city where there was a Gallup office, whatever that day was designated by the managing partner of the office, you reported to the office and company-wide, everybody was in the office and then everybody went to happy hour that night so that we remembered who we were and we continued to develop relationships and get to know each other. But I was on many engagements, multi-million dollar engagements, where I was meeting the consulting principals in person for the first time in the lobby of the client's building. Like we had never met face to face before that. And we were working on the project for six months, eight months, in one case, a year. And we, we were, this is in the early, early ages where video was done like on a polycom with like a grainy camera. So basically it was all conference calls on the phone and an occasional video but it was not where the technology is today. And that was a huge competitive advantage for us. We were able to recruit people who were college professors, not tenured professors, but college professors. We were able to recruit them away to become consultants for us because they could work from their homes 90% of the time. It was an incredible competitive advantage. And if all of this were to go away tomorrow, I think you're still gonna have a handful of companies that use this remote environment as a competitive advantage because you can connect with top talent everywhere. I mean, Nicola, look at what we do now, right? The people that we're working with who help us, the people who work on the show, the people who work in our business, who help us become successful, most of them are not even in the United States. They're, they're all over the place. We couldn't bring those people to an office if we wanted to. So I just, I think that those of you who are listening, those of you who are watching this, you, you always need a competitive advantage, especially when it comes to hiring top talent. If your competitors are mandating that everybody's back in the office and you can figure out a way to keep them remote, you're gonna be able to attract and retain top talent because some people are gonna want that flexibility for sure. So Gina, along those lines, when it comes to managing top talent, Talk a little bit about the performance appraisal process. One of the things that I, I find is a, uh, is a huge advantage for some companies is the way they, they coach and counsel their, their employees, right? The way, and you mentioned training at the top of the show today. Talk about the performance appraisal process and how we can use that as a tool for employee development instead of as a carrot and a stick, to, here's your 5% or here's your 2% instead of 5%. How can we use the performance appraisal process as a tool to help people get better? Yeah, if, I think the, the main thing is, is keeping up with the times. And, and, and right now, what's happening in that arena is that you're looking at uh, performance management and career pathing. So the historical looking back at performance through appraisals, as it's a thing of the past. It's not happening anymore. It shouldn't happen. Because what you want to do is you want to look at the present, just like human beings, right? We, we want to look at what we're doing now and what we can do in the future. We don't want to look back at our mistakes. And 
things that didn't go right. We learn from them, but we want to look here and now and in the future. So that's how you need to approach performance management. You need to look and help your employees be forward thinking, help them use goals and objectives, and also make sure that you have that professional and personal growth built into that. So you're looking at a path for excellence, a professional growth path, and a leadership path, perhaps. So you know, depending on what what the where the employee is and what they need to work on, that's what you need to do with your performance process. Yeah, I think what we keep coming back to is you really need to be focused on the development of your employees and not looking so much at, you know, something that's just like a rigid measurement of where they are. It's about really investing in your employees, especially today where employees want to feel valued to remain at an organization. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, you know, when you're giving conversations and you're having, you know, it's conversations that are consistent, recognition, uh, and then those goal setting and where do you see yourself in getting the employee's thoughts on that too. Because, you know, like I said, not everybody wants to be a leader. You know, you're you're not going, and you need a, a diverse set of employees with different aspirations. It just makes your company better. Yeah, we fall back on the the old adage of the top salesperson being promoted to sales manager, and then the entire sales team suffers because that person has no leadership experience. They probably have no administrative experience, and you're taking your best salesperson out of the field, away from the clients who love them so much, it just kills everything. So I think you're right. I think there's a there's a there is a hierarchy in every organization and people work their way up if there's a defined path. But then there's also an individual contributor hierarchy. And I'm, I'm curious uh, as to your experience in this regard, Gina, in the best companies that I've seen, the compensation in some of the key contributor categories, particularly sales and in in some of the technology companies and in pharmaceuticals, biotech. In research and development, the compensation for some of those key contributors along those paths is just as high, if not higher, than people in leadership positions because that's what drives the value of the company. Has that been your experience, Gia? Oh, yeah. So you have leaders who will say, oh, man, the, the top salesperson makes way more than I do. I, I should leave leadership and go and do what they're doing, you know? So definitely the, the, um, there is a hierarchy and there is a reward system when it comes to how you're performing, right? So I think that that is a common thing. So Gina, I'd like to just take a, a broad view as to like what can any company out there, regardless of its size, be thinking about that they can put in place that it's going to help their business in the long run, those kind of foundational aspects of HR. Give us some of those for our audience listening today. Yeah, so the foundational stuff, you're you're immediately, I would say, looking at, you know, policies, your handbook, you know, understanding what is it that you want as a business to, you know, have in place when it comes to the treatment of your employees, uh, what you expect for, for them to do and how you expect for them to um, show up every day, right? How do you, how do you want to work in your organization? How do you want that to look? What do you want your culture to be like? So when it comes to the foundation, you're building that in an initial handbook. And then um, ensuring the job descriptions. I think a lot of people overlook that. They don't realize that those job descriptions are tied into so much when it turns into compliance issues. So 
when you're having interactive conversations about or interactive process when it comes to somebody who says, I can't perform this particular part of my job, then you need to have that in some documented way. So job descriptions are very important. Um, the hiring process, the initial way that you're introducing people into your organization is a foundation that needs to be built. An exit process, even though you want to retain all of your talent, you still need an exit process that kind of closes the gap, closes the loop and says, you know, this person, you know, has lost, we're, we're taking away the access, we're protecting our data, all of those things. And then as you grow, you're going to want to have a good onboarding process, a performance management process, something that shows rewards and recognition to your employees and a retention strategy. So those things are, are kind of the employee employment life cycle that you want to look at. Yeah, that's a great overview. And how about for those issues that come up, you know, and over the course of business, you have issues with employees that you need to address. What can business owners do there to make sure that they're having a, a good foundational practice for addressing that? Yeah, so you do need to understand what triggers what, right? So like if somebody comes and says, you know, I, I, I will give an example. I have have migraines and I, I need this particular accommodation. It might be an in indication or it might be something that the, the company says, oh, well, we, we need you to do the job and, and not really be flexible in that regard. But what they didn't recognize maybe is that that triggered an interactive process. You have to talk to the employee about what, how can I help you do your job? What things can we put in place that will help you be able to come to work when you have a migraine? Is there something we can do? You actually have, you can say no in the end if it's an undue hardship, but it's not your company that actually defines what an undue hardship is. So understanding that, you know, what it means when you say no and what, what kind of triggers that sort of conversation that has to happen. So I think that um, from a employee uh, mediation standpoint or an employee, uh, whenever you have sort of some of those problems that come up, you need to know what, how to respond appropriately. So Gina, we've given people a, a lot to think about in, in the last uh, 40 minutes or so. When does it make sense to, it always makes sense to bring you in because you can come in and fix something and then go away and then come back and fix something else later. But at what size should a company, how many employees should a company think about bringing on somebody who's dedicated to HR? Because most smaller businesses, the payroll probably resides with the bookkeeper or whoever's doing the books. And maybe they sign people up for benefits too. But there's nobody there to you know, enforce like a guarantee of fair treatment or to go through the I-9 information or to you know, make sure that everything is being done consistently. What size in terms of either dollars or number of employees does it make sense to bring in somebody dedicated to overseeing the strategic HR aspects and not just the administrative? Well, I'll say, unfortunately, a lot of companies are getting that wrong. They're, they're starting to do it when they have a lot of problems already. So when they have to start calling their employment attorney and uh, you know, go through workplace investigations and they're having people issues and they're being called a toxic work environment, then they start thinking, oh, maybe we should get an HR person in here. But really there is, it, it's not 
I understand that most small companies, they're not going to have the, they, they don't want to put the money into admin. They want to do the re revenue producing positions first, right? But when you start to build those revenue producing positions and you start to increase and in count, it could be as low as 10 people that you actually need somebody to kind of support and uh, administer the benefits and help, you know, with the growth and other things. So I don't, I, I don't want to say that there is, uh, I, I feel like it's never too early to start planning and understanding at least a part-time HR generalist, you know, to have on staff would be a good thing. You know, I guess a way to look at it would be if turnover costs you say 33% over and above the person's salary, right? It's like a third of the person's salary is the cost of turnover. If you're going to, if you have three people in your, in your company and you can keep one of them from quitting, you're going to be in better shape. <laughs> you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think if you, depending on the type of business you have, and the number of moving parts. I know businesses that operate with the bulk of their their folks are contractors and they have somebody in the in the relationship department to make sure the contractors have somebody to call when there's when there's an issue so that they feel like they're, you know, they're being taken care of like a customer. So if you had one customer, would you ignore them? No. So I guess if you have one employee, you probably should have somebody dedicated to make sure that the employee is is happy and successful and has everything they need in order to do their job well. Um, Nicola, what are your final thoughts? Yeah, well, actually, I want to pick up on this for just a moment. So I, for those out there, Gina, who are unfamiliar with using someone in the HR space who is not an employee, I think there are more benefits here. I just want you to touch on you know, the distinction between like the cost of having someone in-house who's a full-time HR person versus someone where it's like you, you can come in where they may need assistance, but you don't need to have a full-time employee. So I, I like to share data. I like to share that, you know, what they're going to pay for an in-house professional to do some of the strategy work and some of the building and any, any of the work that, you know, generalists would do. Uh, they're, they're going to pay a full-time salary. They're going to pay incentive bonus. They're going to pay for benefits. And then there's the cost of the overhead. So um, really having somebody on a fractional basis, you're going to, you're not going to pay benefits. You're not going to pay an incentive or a bonus. You're just strictly paying a fraction of the cost. So I think that that is something that's up and coming. It's been, you know, HR, fractional HR is out there and that's what I do. And it's something that companies can take advantage of to lower their costs. Thank you. Yeah, that was an excellent explanation of, of it and exactly what I wanted you to highlight because it is a, a short-term savings for the company in hiring someone like you where they don't necessarily need a full-time positioned HR director. And we heard long-term benefits here too, because you can make sure you're retaining those key employees that you already have by having someone with the right expertise. Gina, the HR genius, it has been so great having you here today. I feel like you've left us and the business owners out there with so many takeaways and things to think about um, as you leave us today. So I wanna say thank you for joining us. It's really been such a pleasure uh, having you on the show. It was a pleasure being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to our audience for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to watch another episode and tell your friends about the Inside BS Show. And with that, I'm Nikki G, and you are? I'm the godfather of growth, Dave Lorenzo. And we'll be back here tomorrow. <laughs>